You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Before we get started, I am excited to let you know that if you like the podcast and enjoy listening to episodes, these conversations are now available in book form. The book is called Unmuted Conversations on Prejudice, Oppression, and Social Justice, and it is published by Oxford University Press. If you're listening before March 1st, head over to Amazon and pre-order a copy. If you're listening after March 1st, run to your local bookstore or online and grab a copy today. You would not regret it. The book has a foreword by Cornell West, illustrations of contributors, an informative glossary section, and lots of accessible and interesting conversations. Get unmuted, the book, today. Now, let's get into the episode. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Serena Perrick. Serena is an associate professor of philosophy at Northeastern University in Boston, where she is also the director of the Politics, Philosophy, and Economics program. Her philosophical interests are in social and political philosophy, feminist philosophy, and the philosophy of human rights. Her latest book is Refugees and the Ethics of Forced Displacement, and she is currently working on a new book, tentatively entitled No Refuge for Refugees, Ethics and the Global Refugee Crisis. In this episode, we talk about refugees and statelessness, our moral obligations to refugees, the harms of statelessness, and so much more. Hello, Serena, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? Hi, Marisha. I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Serena, tell me, how did you get interested in philosophy? You know, I've always wished I had a better story to answer that. <laughs> okay. But, you know, I was, I was an undergrad at McGill, and I didn't really know what to major in. And so I picked philosophy. <laughs> Just and, randomly? Well, you know, I had taken a, you know, I probably had to pick in my second year or something like that. And I had taken a class. And it was the class I liked the most. And, and I think, like, what was I thinking back then? You know, when you go to a school that's, when you're outside of the U.S. and go doing an undergraduate degree and you're not paying very much for it, I just think there's a lot less pressure. Like, you, you don't think about it as much. So I did my undergraduate degree and it was fine. And then I didn't know what I wanted to do when I graduated. <laughs> So I did the thing we tell our students not to do, which is I just went and did a graduate program because I didn't know what else to do. But I did it in Belgium. And also the tuition was $500. So, you know, I didn't have to take out loans and it was very, um, it was very inexpensive to do. And I got to sort of meander around a little bit more, do it a little more seriously. And that's when somebody said like, oh, Hannah Arendt, I think you'd really like her. And I started reading Arendt and, and that's like well into graduate school, like that was the moment where I really fell in love with philosophy and, and really the style of thinking, the content, you know, thinking about totalitarianism and justice and freedom in these really robust ways. And, you know, there's something about reading a rant that really sparked something in me. And then, you know, so I wrote on her and it just wasn't enough. And like, that's what made me want to do a PhD after that. 
Okay. Okay. That's interesting. It's not until, so I, I assume that this is like a master's program or at least equivalent of a master's program in Belgium. And that while you're in the master's program that you say that you fell in love. Yeah. Which is interesting. That's like saying, you know, I met this guy. <laughs> we dated. We dated for like five years. Like the sixth year we fell in love. When we got engaged, I fell in love with him. Like that's, that's yeah. a very interesting, interesting journey. It's like an arranged marriage. You know, like you, you do the thing you're supposed to do. And then if it works out, then you fall in love at some point. And, yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't know, you know, my parents are immigrants from India. And I think a lot of parents from Indian cultures sort of push their kids in a certain directions. And my parents really didn't. And so I sort of had the freedom to explore a little bit more and just be open to different things. And I, you know, again, I feel like my students are so concerned about getting a job because their tuition is so expensive and their parents are taking out loans and they're taking out loans and there's so much pressure on them. And I didn't really have that. So I feel like my decisions and my sort of journey was in a large part shaped by those material conditions that allowed me just to be free and think about what I'd like to do and, and, and a good degree of naivety, you know, not really knowing what it meant to be a professional philosopher and the odds on the job market and things that I should have known about. <laughs> but I didn't, and I'm kind of glad I didn't because I don't know if I would have chosen that this path if I had known all the things you know we know now about it. So I have heard of the term refugees, right? But I've never heard of the term statelessness. And you use this term in your work. So can you define those two terms for us? Are they the same? Are they different? And can you give us some statistics that may help us see their reality. Absolutely. So the term refugee is the legal term of art. I mean, this is the legal category that most people have in mind when they talk about refugees. It comes from the 1951 UN Convention relating to the status of refugees, and it defines a refugee as a person who has a well-founded fear of being persecuted for one of five reasons, race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. You have to be outside the country of your nationality and unwilling or unable to avail yourself of the protection of your country. So in other words, you, you have to be outside of your country, you have to be persecuted for one of these five grounds, and you have to be able to give good reason for why you can't rely on your own country to protect you. So when this was drafted, it was drafted to be deliberately narrow and to not include lots of other people who may want to seek international protection. In particular, of course, what are called economic migrants, people who are coming from poor countries to improve their, their chances of life, to improve their quality of life. But what it's, the definition has done is to focus on a very, very narrow group of people. So for example, technically, people fleeing war are not considered refugees under this definition because it's not persecution on one of these five grounds. People who might be fleeing climate change or environmental disasters, famine, drought, instability, also technically wouldn't be considered refugees. So the UN, for example, doesn't use this definition. They have a much broader conception of a refugee. And a lot of regional organizations, like the Organization for African Unity, for example, has a broader definition. So I like the term stateless because what it does is to highlight that there's the, the morally relevant ground for considering refugees to be different than other kinds of migrants is that they have lost their statehood. 
And so I think the term stateless highlights that. And I also think it's just more inclusive of people who I think ought to be the subject of our moral concern, but don't fall into the narrow bounds of being a refugee. So to give you some statistics, according you know, to the UN numbers, there are 68.5 million what they call forcibly displaced people. So people who have been displaced from their homes for a variety of reasons. About 20 million, 20 to 25 wow. million are considered refugees, according to this definition. So you have this very, very large group who effectively we've not really even theorized. And I think the term forcibly displaced person is great, and I'm, I'm happy to use that. I do still prefer stateless person because I think it encompasses even to groups that the UN that, that aren't counted under forcibly displaced person. So for example, you have uh, de jure stateless people. So these are people who are citizens of the state and may have had their citizenship revoked for any number of reasons, or perhaps were never granted citizenship or granted a birth certificate because say they're members of a particular minority. So Haitians in the Dominican Republic became stateless a few years ago for this reason. And I still think, well, we owe some kinds of moral consideration to people in this group. And then if you look at another category of people that I find really interesting, which are the rejected. So these are people who might have come to a country to claim asylum and have their asylum claims denied in one particular country, but still feel like they can't go home. And you think, well, they're just playing the system. But it's so arbitrary because if they had claimed asylum, say, in France, they might have gotten it. If they claimed it in Germany, they might not have gotten it. A lot of the determinations of asylum are very political. And so I still think, again, you know, what, what do we owe to people who are in this situation who genuinely believe they can't go back home and yet aren't believed by, you know, the, the asylum officer that happens to be there? So anyway, so that's why I think the term stateless is more encompassing. Um, I think forcibly displaced people also has the same term. Uh, the, the worry I have is that if you don't fit into the category of refugee, as the majority of, you know, forcibly displaced people aren't or don't, we might be led to think that we actually don't owe them any kind of moral consideration. Okay, okay. So what what is the ethics of admission since we're thinking about kind of more obligations? And why do you think that this has too narrow of a focus? The ethics of admission is a group of philosophical theories that puts at the forefront the question of whether or not we have moral obligations to admit refugees to uh, Western liberal democracies, or whether there is a morally acceptable ground for rejecting them and closing our borders to them. And it focuses on this question of admission. How many refugees do we have to admit to say that we've achieved our moral obligation? And there are different sides to this. So people take different, give you different answers to this question. So there are people, you know, like Joseph Karen or Matthew Gibney, who argue for extensive obligations to refugees, and others like David Miller, Christopher Wellman, who argue for much more limited obligations to refugees. And again, they'll give different grounds for this. But the question is, how many refugees are we obliged to admit? And so I think this approach to our obligations to refugees is too narrow for two reasons. And the first reason, and this is what struck me when I first began to do this, if I said, how many refugees do you think we resettle every year? You know, I always ask audiences this and students this, and they all have numbers that are all over the place. But most are very surprised that it's only about 1% of refugees that are actually ever resettled. Wow. And that's actually in a good year. It's likely to be much less. Really? in 2018, because the U.S. is actually one of the biggest U.S. resettlement countries. And we've lowered, we, we, we took a historically low number of refugees last year. 
So it's a solution to the refugee crisis that has historically actually only applied to 1% of refugees. So it seemed like we were debating something that really had very little connection to the actual lives of refugees. And in part, even if we were to be doubly as generous, or triply as generous as we are, you know, we're still talking single digits in terms of helping refugees. And, you know, even theoretically, I think, what we're talking about is a solution that's only viable for a small percentage of people who have lost the protection of their state, as we talked about a few minutes ago. So stateless people who have lost the protection of the state and have no ability to claim their human rights. Well, refugees are a small subsection of that. And we're debating how many of them we should admit or not admit. And we don't really even think about other people. And the other reason I think we ought to move beyond it, which is not to say that resettlement isn't an important issue, but it's just one issue and a a much larger problem, I think. We never ask the question, well, what happens to people that we believe we have no obligation to admit? So imagine you are a theorist and you think we have robust obligations to refugees and but it can't, you know, there's a there's a moral limit to our, our obligations to rescue, as it's sometimes said. Okay, so we've done our part. Well, what happens to the other, you know, 19 million refugees or 64 million refugees, depending on how you wanna what you want to include in that number? And I think the unspoken assumption is something like this. Well, refugees will wait in a refugee camp and they'll have their basic needs met and then either another country will resettle them or they'll be able to return. And that's how refugees are supposed to be solved. And again, this really struck me because so first of all, the average length of time in the 21st century you're likely to remain a refugee is 17 years and 25 years if you're fleeing war. So we're not talking about a temporary condition. So we ask refugees to live in refugee camps. We're not saying, like, go hang out there for a few months and we'll, you know, figure something out for you. It's a generation. And then there are refugee camps, of course, where generations have been born and grow up and have families. And then if you look, even if you scratch the surface about what life is like for refugees in refugee camps, it's clear that they don't have access to the minimum conditions of human dignity. So I think it's really problematic to assume that if we don't take them in, they'll have the minimum conditions of their human dignity met somewhere else or in some other way. So again, I think that is all left out of our moral framework when we focus just on admission to Western democracies. Right. It's it's interesting that you mention or allowing us to consider kind of the reality of of refugees and the harms that they encounter. Now, I wanted you to kind of expound on this a little bit more. And I know that the philosophical literature have also offered up some arguments about the, I guess you could say kind of the, what we call legal and political harms. But I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about the harms that stateless people experience. And this is prior to kind of the the harm that you offer up that have not been considered. But what are some of the arguments offered up about the legal and political harms that those who are are stateless experience? Sure. All philosophers of immigration, all people who sort of think about our obligations to refugees agree that we owe more to refugees than we do to immigrants in general, because primarily of the moral dimension of our of their claims. So Michael Walser, for example, who I think kind of starts off this debate in many ways, says that refugees make the most forceful claim on us for admission. If you don't take me in, I shall be killed, persecuted, and brutally oppressed by the rulers of my country. So for him, the idea was that other immigrants might prefer to move, but refugees really have a claim to physical 
harm or destruction if they don't come in, if we don't let them into our countries. And if they come to claim asylum, we are, and we don't allow them in, we force them to go back to their home countries, we may actually be contributing to their physical harm. Um, but legally, the, it's a really interesting question. So once you, you cease living under the jurisdiction of domestic law, so your state says, we want nothing to do to you, we're not going to protect you, you're on your own, you effectively don't have any other body that's going to protect your human rights. And so this is something that Hannah Arendt noticed and one of the things that got me interested in this topic. So for her, the loss of your national rights was identical with the loss of your human rights because citizenship and humanity seem to go hand in hand in the 20th and 21st century. So to claim your human rights, you have to claim them against a state. And normally this works great because everyone has a state that they can claim their human rights for. But refugees and stateless people are people who cannot do that. And so they've actually lost legal protection as such. So they've, they've lost the ability to have rights. So Hannah Arendt says they've lost the right to have rights, to be part of a political community that can protect your rights. And I think this is fairly well established. Almost everyone agrees that refugees and people who have been made stateless, forced to flee their country, experience a kind of deprivation, a kind of harm that's different from somebody who is poor, but still is allowed to be in their country, still could go home, still could be part of a political community if they wanted to. So I think that's the legal and political nature of the harm the refugees experience. And that harm for many can only be replaced by citizenship in another country, which is why the ethics of admission focuses so much on this question of the, the ethics of who's allowed to be admitted into liberal democracies. So in, in your work, you focus on another kind of harm, a neglected one, and you turn to Arant to, in your words, develop an understanding of statelessness that is more fitting for the contemporary global situation. Tell us more about what you refer to as the ontological harm of statelessness. So I developed this concept drawing on Hannah Arendt's work and the origins of totalitarianism and we refugees and some other pieces. And she herself was a stateless person. She had no citizenship for about 19 years. And so she's looking at this as a political philosopher. And I think as well, drawing on her own experience of how it felt to be a refugee, to be the person in this situation. So if you think the only harm that refugees experience is this deprivation of human rights, then of course the only solution is going to be replacing citizenship with a new kind of citizenship. So you're going to focus on admission. But if it's the case, the refugees, in fact, remain refugees for these long periods of time, in particular in refugee camps or in urban settlements, there's another kind of loss that they experience and that is intensified by this long duration. This is the ontological deprivation. So I think it means two things. So on the one hand, it's a reduction of who you are to what you are. So it's a reduction, to use Giorgio Gombin's phrase, to bear life, from, from political agency to bear life. So in refugee camps, people are treated as bodies to be cared for. Right? So there's a minimum number of calories that should be given. Often it's not, but that's they aim for. There is shelter. There is some water, sometimes education, which is very, very important. But refugees are treated as a who and not as a what. And I'll come back to this in a second. And then the second aspect of it is that it denies a person 
the ability to speak and act meaningfully. So for Arendt, this is what she would understand as a loss of agency. And by this, I mean not a subjective disposition. It's not that I feel free or unfree, but I'm, I do not live in a context in where my words and actions can be recognized by others as being meaningful and politically relevant. For Arendt, action was always intersubjective. It wasn't just a matter of doing things or saying things, but it was a matter of having my words and actions recognized by other people. And both of these, I think, are lost when you become a refugee. So one of the things she says, as the most common complaints of refugees from all levels of society is, nobody here knows who I am. So you might think, I'm Maisha Cherry, I'm a philosophy professor, I am a member of this community, I have friends, I have connections. And when you become a refugee, you become just a refugee, a human being in general. And the, the contradiction she pointed out was that all the Enlightenment thinkers thought that relying on your humanity would be enough to guarantee your human rights. People would see you as a human being and be moved to help you. But what she said was that the world found nothing sacred in the abstract nakedness of being human. So as soon as you became nothing but a human being, this bare sense of bare life, biological life, it actually became harder to treat you as human beings. And I look at some of the treatment of refugees in refugee camps, both in the global south and in Europe, and you think, I wonder if they think of them as human beings. And then the sense of plurality, I mean, this is a real Arendtian concept. Like what it means for her to be human is to be able to access agency and to be able to act and speak in these meaningful ways. What we would be long for as human beings is to reveal the uniqueness about ourselves, what distinguishes us um, to other human beings and to have this recognized as such. And for her, that's the very essence of freedom. It's not a disposition of the will, but it's this intersubjective relationship with other people. And if you live in a context, again, where you are not recognized in your identity, a context of a, a permanent precariousness, as Michelle Agir says, you can't be seen as who you are. Your words aren't taken to be meaningful these, in, in these particular ways. So she says, like, look, what's fundamental for human right for human beings is not human rights as they had been understood as the right of these abstract human beings, but in fact, the right to have rights which is to live in a framework where you're judged by your actions and opinions. And the, the, the total deprivation of human rights, she says, is manifest first and above all in the deprivation of a place which makes opinions significant and actions effective. So I think feminist philosophers have coined this idea of epistemic injustice and the harm that this does to people. And I think there's some overlap with what Arendt means by the ontological deprivation. Um, but it's it's tied, of course, to your political status, because if you were to be resettled, you, know, you would also have you know, your the ontological deprivation restored. But I think by separating these out, we can actually be more attuned to what refugees around the world might need over and above being resettled in Western democracies. So some people think like refugees, all refugees want to come to the West. Most refugees want to come to America. And it's not entirely clear that that's the case. Many would prefer to stay in the global South, close to uh, communities they may be familiar with, languages, cultures, foods, etc. But nobody wants to have these fundamental deprivations. And we've kind of created an all or nothing system. And I think if you take seriously the ontological deprivation, there are things we could support, things we could be doing in order to help refugees 
have more of their humanity restored to them while they are refugees, even while they're waiting for durable solutions, either resettlement or being able to return home to a new country. You give some suggestive actions or what you call kind of ethical obligations that follow from your analysis. And I wonder if you can share at least one of them with us. Sure, absolutely. So I think that we need to change the question from do we owe refugees admission to our states to something like do we owe refugees and displaced people access to the minimum conditions of human dignity? And if that's the case, I think we need to be open to funding, supporting and encouraging other ways of finding solutions for refugees besides resettlement. And I think the perhaps most important one has to do with how we support refugees who are living in the global south. So about half live in refugee camps and about half live in urban settlements. And in urban settlements, fewer than one in 10 have access to aid from the international community. And refugee camps, of course, I've sort of suggested that they are generally terrible places. And by and large, the U.S. has supported refugee camps as the primary way of delivering aid to refugees for the last 20 or 30 years or so. And two scholars that I like a lot, Betts and Collier, have said that refugee camps have the rare folly of being both inhumane and expensive. So what we can do instead is to fund temporary local integration, as it's sometimes called. So building hospitals, roads, schools for the community, not just for refugees, on the condition that refugees be allowed to integrate, their human rights be protected. But perhaps one of the biggest things we could do is support some of the policies that allow refugees to work. So some scholars, for example, have suggested rather than funding refugee camps, what if we use these billions of dollars that we put towards that to giving companies and host countries preferable trading relationships or access to our markets on the condition, again, that they hire refugees. And and I think an important caveat is that we ensure that their human rights are, are fundamentally protected. The, most of our aid to refugees goes into resettlement and asylum. So the refugees who connect to Western states, and that's at best 10% of refugees. So people say, oh, it's so expensive. We can't possibly be doing more. And it just seems like for people who study this, there's a consensus that we're, we're spending way too much on the wrong things and a shift in our funding, a shift in our priorities, a shift in how we see refugees. I mean, I think we're committed to the view that refugees are refugees for short periods of time. And so we plan for refugees to be refugees for two or three years. We set up refugee camps in these ways. And it's just not the reality for refugees in most places in the 21st century. So what my, my overall point is that I just I think we need to reconsider how we help refugees, given the reality of life for refugees in the 21st century. And we need to think beyond just resettlement in Western states as our ethical obligation. Given what we've discussed so far, we are recording this this interview January 2019, and we're currently, uh, the government is shut down, and it's over not reaching a consensus on the border wall. So given what we've discussed so far, what would you say are other obligations to migrants? And this is just a particular or, uh, kind of an example, because I think this is what's on people's minds, although there are other refugees and stateless people in our U.S. context. But what would you say is our other obligations to migrants from Central America who are currently at the Mexican-U.S. border? Yeah, that's a great question. In this case, I think our legal obligations at least are fairly clear. So all human beings have the universally recognized human right to seek asylum. 
And the Refugee Convention is very clear that you do not need to do this at a legally recognized port of entry. Because, of course, asylum seekers are, are fleeing desperate situations and they are going to get to another country however they can get there. One of the examples I use in my book is, like, look, look, are we going to deny the Von Trapp family asylum because they went over the Swiss Alps and didn't present themselves as a border? So it's, it's both intuitive because of who asylum seekers are. And it's actually part of international law that we are a party to, to recognize that all people who come into the country to seek asylum have a right to do that. And as a result, they have a right to have their claims processed in an efficient manner. So we could be sending judges down. We could be sending lawyers down. We could be we, we ought to hear all of the asylum claims of people coming through. And there's a question of efficiency or there are too many people. But it's just not I, I don't I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for how viable those excuses are, because we can we, we can process claims in a more efficient manner. If there's political will. But I think there's a moral obligation that hasn't been talked about enough. I think we need to stop vilifying refugees and asylum seekers. There is no evidence that they are drug dealers. There's even less evidence from no evidence that they are terrorists. When we look at crime statistics for refugees in the United States, they lower the crime rates of neighborhoods that they settle in and not raise them. And I think people who claim that asylum seekers are dangerous criminals, many of them know that. And I think that's an incredibly unethical thing to do. Politically expedient, for sure. But how we talk about asylum seekers and refugees is really important because people internalize this message of how terrifying they are. And we ought to have policies that protect us from them rather than thinking about what we might owe to them as human beings, for one, and then as our legal obligations and international law are, on the other hand. And we've historically been a leader in refugee resettlement. And of course, no longer for obvious reasons. But I, I think we ought to be moving back to that, of course. And I, you know, of course, this is this is a political issue. And it's we, we can we can sort of talk about the politics of what's happening here at the moment. But I think our legal obligations are clear, our moral obligations to Central American asylum seekers is also pretty clear. Where it gets muddled is whether or not they're cons- they ought to qualify for refugee status according to the way we've interpreted. The, the definition of a refugee, we've historically interpreted it as persecution that is done by your state. And it's not clear whether or not persecution by a third actor, in this case, gangs, or in some cases, abusive husbands. There are many women who are fleeing extreme violence in the, parts, in the part of their partners, whether that constitutes claims to asylum. In the U.S., that has historically been recognized, and there's a lot of jurisprudence around that. But somebody like Jeff Sessions recently said that he's going to reinterpret the law in this much more narrow way so that persecution only relates to persecution directly caused by the state. But I think if you want to have that debate, we can have that debate. But the first thing we need to do is to allow asylum seekers into the U.S. and begin to hear their claims to asylum. All right. So you are a Canadian who lives in the U.S.? Yes. I'm, I'm a U.S. citizen, too. <laughs> no, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I didn't, I didn't know this uh, prior to you explicitly telling me this. And I think we discussed this prior before our audience. I wonder, what are some ways in which uh, you recognize that your, how can I say this, Canadianness manifests itself? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, you know, I want to say, like, the thing I always joke about is that my standards for politeness are maybe higher than other Americans. <laughs> I say a lot okay. more pleases and thank yous. And how how is it connected? You know, one of the differences, I think, is the way Canadians as a whole tend to see the role of the state. I think we tend to be much less suspicious of it and much more confident in its ability to do good. So when we think about being taxed, the sense I have is that most Canadians don't, you know, clench their jaws and feel resentful of having to pay their taxes, even though taxes are much higher, because there's a sense of common good and there's a sense of pride that what we're doing with the taxes is something good and beneficial for everyone. And there's a real resistance to that, I feel, in the, in the U.S. And I'm thinking of my students here. I teach a course called Economic Justice. And when we talk about the role of the free market versus the role of the state, it's taken me a long time to realize that I need to get into a different frame of mind when thinking about the optimism I have about the role that <laughs> a functioning state can play in social justice. Where do you think that that, that optimism and that, that confidence comes from? I mean, I, I wonder how much of his history, because I'm thinking about in relationship to taxes. I mean, you go back to the kind of the early establishment of the states I mean, no taxation without representation. I mean, we, we've always had kind of like this, I guess, this criticism or at least this uh, skepticism about taxes and how they're being utilized. So it, it's just I mean, even uh, the revolution is, was built on, you know, our not trusting the state, which is, was Britain. So I wonder how much of it is historical, how much of it is is pretty much cultural. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so that that historical moment is, of course, profound. But then you have this moment after the Second World War where you have massive government spending that is really great. I mean, there are housing programs and the suburbs get built and you have Social Security. And, and then that tends to wane, of course, with Reagan in the U.S. and Thatcher in the U.K. in the 80s. And I feel like that sense of the government and taxation is slowing the economy really takes its current shape at that historical moment. and. I don't know exactly why that doesn't happen in Canada. I think in part because shortly before that, you have universal health care, you have universal education. That sort of changes the experience of life for Canadians at that moment. That we didn't have the sort of neoliberal policies at that moment in those particular ways. I mean, we certainly, and, and increasingly so. But I think that sense of pride in those institutions, healthcare, education, especially, have given rise to that sense in, in Canada. And they could be wrong. There could be Canadians listening who think, oh, no way. <laughs> <laughs> so it might be just a sample size of you know my friends and family, but it does seem to be a slightly different attitude towards the role of the state and the role that we as individuals play in it. Where does the niceness come into? Because <laughs> I hear this from a lot of Canadians and my experience <laughs> with, I have a, several Canadian friends. Where does it come from, I wonder? Yeah, it's a great question. I have no idea. And I gotta say, like, my experience living in the U.S. has been a very friendly people. No question about <laughs> it. So I don't want to. I don't want to make right, this. Right, you know, right. Oh, Canada's so great and America's so bad. Like, not at all. Like, there are pockets everywhere of quirky people. I think, but I don't. I, I genuinely don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I wish I knew. That's a great question. <laughs> when you are are not reading and and writing philosophy. What are you reading? Oof, that's a loaded question. I don't, <laughs> just because I don't read nearly as much as 
I would like to, and I'm very conscious of that. So I tend mm-hmm. to read shorter things. The New Yorker, things you post on Facebook, of course, Maisha. <laughs> you know, it's hard to get away from reading about the contemporary political situation because I think everyone I know is just struggling to make meaning from it and to understand it. Um, so I tend to read those much shorter pieces rather. I mean, I, I aspire to read. I try to read a novel between semesters in the summer. What was the last novel that you read? Oh, you know, I read Americana. Oh, I love it. I, I love loved it. it. Yes. I mean, it's just it's beautiful and profound and makes me see the world in a different way. And makes me, it reminds me of how provincial I am in my ways of thinking about things. And it does all, all the things literature should do. I really enjoy that. Do you feel like when you're reading The New Yorker that you're working? Or do you feel like it's leisure reading for you? Oh, I think of it as leisure reading. Really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I read things that I, I find interesting. I do have a sort of way of collecting articles that connect to work. And I read those sort of separately. But yeah, I, I like, you know, I just like reading profiles of people. And I mean, of course, then they overlap. There's a great profile of Elizabeth Anderson a few weeks ago. <laughs> Right. That was so wonderful. For those who those who don't know, there's Elizabeth Anderson is a, a philosopher who teaches at the University of Michigan. And there was a, a New York, I think it was the first week of, the, of January issue. It's also available online that profiled her. And I enjoyed it, thoroughly enjoyed it, thoroughly enjoyed it. I uh, So I, I recommend uh, listeners to go check out the, the article online. I, I really, I really enjoyed the article. So, so, so speaking of profiles, I wonder if you could, what is it about profiles that, that, that do it for you? Because one of the things is, I guess I answer first and, and then I, you know, give you some time to think about it. One of the things I found interesting about this particular profile, and I didn't feel like I was working when I was reading it. I mean, not only do you get the opportunity to kind of dig into the life of someone who's well accomplished, in some ways you want to, you look at it to try to figure out some roadmaps for your own self, but also it, it becomes kind of a window into what are the other parts of their world look like? And I was tremendously like one of the things that kind of echo throughout the article that I will remember is her emphasis on PowerPoint. <laughs> oh, and I liked how the, how the writer was like, you know, her emphasis, like, oh, just, just use a PowerPoint and read. And another thing that I found interesting is what she her and her husband did on their honeymoon. It was like a, a it had something to do with rocks or getting like a, a, yes, that's right. a scholar and rocks to kind of show them around. And it was kind of like that uh, uh, that desire for knowledge that is beyond philosophy that I really, really enjoyed. So that's what I kind of get from profiles. So what is it about profiles that work for you? Yeah, that's something similar. I think seeing the way they embody their humanness. I think there was something about her laugh that I remember being struck by. That she has this <laughs> right. very goofy laugh. And there's something about, you know, somebody you've read whose work you really appreciate and you find out, oh, they're a human being with a laugh and they are right. awkward when they get dressed up. And, right. and yeah, her relationship with her husband and her students and her institution. And I, I, I think it kind of connects to the sense that we that I have of trying to make meaning out of the world and why we, you know, why we do the things we do, why we make choices, how we become certain kinds of people. Right. Serena, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you so much for having me. Your podcast is so wonderful. Oh, you're so kind. Thank you so much. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak.
the world will be different as a result.